Well, please do turn with me back to John's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, there's a little stash at the back. It'll be a great help as we work through the text. And this morning we come to verses 19 to 34 of chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, page 886 in the Black Visitor's Bibles. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, let me ask you the tacky question. How is your personal brand these days? My hope, brothers and sisters, is that most of us can't begin to fathom what I mean. Why would any Christian have a personal brand? And yet, in our culture, it is not money which makes the world go round. It's fame. You know it, don't you? If you're at school... What image do you have? What do you wish your classmates saw? What will it take to cultivate that? Think of the phrases that have just become background noise now in our culture, so ubiquitous we don't even hear them. How many times, those of you who listen to podcasts, do you hear the phrase, if you like what you heard, please don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps others find the show. Tell us what you think down in the comments. Do they really care what you think? Not a chance, but it drives the clicks. 
or most annoying of all, the one I hear at the end of every bizarre YouTube video my kids obsessively watch. How does it go? Remember to, I can see people mouthing it, like and subscribe, ring that bell, turn the red button gray. I don't even know what that means, but it's something to do with building the brand, isn't it, Daniel? Because fame, fame is what makes the world go round. So how incredibly weird is it on this first page of John's Gospel to read a story like this one? This morning, we meet the man who probably had the best personal brand in the Jordan Valley, and then we watch him joyfully throw it all away. In fact, he could not be less comfortable in the limelight because he knows there's someone else who deserves all the attention. Someone it will be the privilege of his life to point towards. In the other Gospels, he goes by the Twitter handle of John the Baptist. In this book, he was introduced last week slightly differently, wasn't he? We met him right at the start as he was photobombing the prologue, right as we were being introduced to the eternal Father and the eternal Son and their eternal overflowing love, right there, up in the headlines, was this man introduced as John the Witness. Because what he has to testify about Jesus will be central to this gospel. John has one job, and it's to make sure the world hears two particular truths about Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the king sent from heaven, he is able to do two things, two inseparable sides of the same reality. He is the one who can take away sin and give us life in his spirit. John is going to tell us loads of things about Jesus' identity, but put them all together, and those are the two great pillars of his testimony that the rest of this book sits on. We'll meet them again and again. Everything John does then is about putting our focus on Jesus, making that testimony clear. We get to see two days of his ministry this morning. And in day one, all he tells us is what he is not. I am not the light. So that on day two, he can bear witness to what Jesus is. I came to bear witness about the lights. In other words, look away from me. Look away from the servant in the limelight and look at the life-giving lamb. First then, verses 19 to 28, look away from the servant in the limelight. I wonder if you've ever heard a conversation like this one. It is very odd, isn't it? How long would any broadcaster carry on with an interview that went like this? Good morning, Reverend. First of all, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from? Well, Melanie, this may come as a shock to your viewers, but I am not the Christ. It's a very odd thing to say, isn't it? Notice the ominous way this book gets going. After the prologue, we've been waiting for John's testimony, and verse 19 tells us, here it comes. But it comes because already he's under investigation. The Jews there, that is a phrase John will use a lot. It does not mean... Jewish people as a whole, 
Remember, John himself, the author, was a Jew, and he has the utmost respect for the place of God's Old Testament people in human history. Salvation, he'll tell us, comes from the Jews. But right here at the start, there is a group of religious leaders in Jerusalem who are hostile to the light. And that is usually who John means with this phrase, the Jews. Leaders of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, the confrontation with Jerusalem starts here and it never goes away. Already they formed a sort of study committee to look into whatever John the Witness is getting up to out in the Galilean wilderness. And day one of this gospel reports their investigation into him. Three questions they put to John. And do you notice every time he deflects the attention? Not once does he give a straight answer. They ask who he is. All he'll tell them is who he's not. It's like some weird dinner party game. Now, his answers might look bizarre at first, but the fact it doesn't all end with people laughing at him shows us what an incredibly famous man John must have been to get away with making these denials. So famous that even the historian Josephus mentions the amount of attention his ministry due. Massive crowds, Matthew tells us, flocked out to the desert to listen to him from all over Judea and the Jordan Valley. This man had an international ministry. He was a sensationally popular preacher. Decades later in the book of Acts, we find out that there are still people floating around the Mediterranean who are fans of John the Baptist, but had never heard of the Jesus he came to proclaim. And that is the one thing he dreads. So question number one comes at him in verse 19. Who do you think you are? And verse 20, John could not be more determined not to cop out when he gets the chance to answer. He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed. You get the point? It's endless repetition, isn't it? He is going to go for everything you and I didn't go for. When our colleague asked us, what do we do last Sunday? He's not going to blow his chance except that what he confesses is what he isn't. I'm not the one you should be looking for. Sometimes being clear about what we're not is as important about as being clear about who Jesus is. Isn't that true? I'm nothing special. It's all Jesus. John is the unique witness to Christ in this book, but he's also being presented as the model witness for you and I. And he could so easily have taken the chance to build his brand, but he throws it away. And so they press him, they put answers in his mouth, some of which he could legitimately have gone for. Are you Elijah? Well, there was an expectation from Malachi that before the Messiah, someone would come to Israel in an Elijah the prophet type role. And actually, Jesus and the other gospels do apply that to John. He is a unique prophet preparing the way for Christ. But he won't take the title for himself because he can't stand the idea of any title that draws attention away from the Lord of glory. I'm not literally Elijah, no. 
Then they ask about the prophets, the great figure promised in Deuteronomy. Probably in John's mind, that one at least is a position that belongs to Christ. And so he's even more monosyllabic. Nope. John's answer then to question one basically boils down to this. You are focusing on the wrong bloke. Well, by verse 22, the party game is wearing a little thin, so they ask him again, come on, mate, we've got a report to write on this. Tell us who you are. What do you say about yourself? And all he'll reply is this. I'm someone speaking a message that Isaiah said someone would speak. I'm just a voice, a voice preparing the way for God. Isaiah spoke in chapter 40 onwards about a day that God himself would come to his people, stranded by sin out in the wilderness, and God would come to judge and to save, and the glory of the Lord would be revealed, and all flesh would see it together. And what do we just read in the prologue? Here is the glory of God come in the flesh to dwell with his people. And John's job is simply to make straight his path. What is the biggest obstacle to any human being receiving Christ? Think of anyone you know. Think of yourself before you knew him. What is the one great barrier to us receiving Jesus? It's our own crookedness, isn't it? You and I cling on to our sin. We cherish it. We don't want to give it up. We don't even want to hear about him in case it threatens that. And so John's ministry was really very simple. Answer to question two, all I am is a voice calling people to recognize and repent of their sin, to make straight what is crooked. Because otherwise you will never look for Jesus. And that brings them, verse 25, to the question they really care about. If you're not the Christ, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, then what do you think you're doing? Now, John the writer hasn't actually told us what John was getting up to until verse 24. He assumes, I think, that we've read something about his baptizing in another gospel. But he's told us enough to grasp the significance of what he was doing. How does John understand his ministry? Verse 23. Well, he was calling on people to recognize and repent of their sin and put it away in preparation for the coming of God. Who have Jerusalem sent in verse 19 to investigate him? Well, they sent a committee of priests and Levites. In other words, the experts on purification. John himself, if you remember, is the son of a priest. He is a Levite. So here is some kind of rogue priest baptizing people, washing them in the River Jordan. It's a sign that something huge and sacred is about to happen. And so something huge needs to change. Water was often used in the Old Testament as a symbol for cleansing and renewal. It's a natural symbol of cleansing, isn't it? There was precedent in Israel for baptizing Gentiles, for ceremonially washing them when they 
converted to Judaism, but it wasn't at all something that Israelites thought they needed. I've already been to temple this year. I've made my sacrifice. I don't need that, thanks. You can imagine how it went down, can't you, with the people who ran the nice temple in Jerusalem. If you admit yourself that you're not any of these great end-time figures that we've been waiting for, well, what gives you the authority to stand out here like some crazy end-times nutter, screaming that the end is nigh and doing this radical new religious thing? And once again, he doesn't really answer. Yes, verse 26, I am baptizing with water. Well, we need that, John. <laughs> That's why we're here. But look what he does next. Instead of finishing the sentence the way we'd expect, he shifts the attention away again. It's almost, verse 26, as if he's saying something like this. If only you guys knew who was standing next to you right now you would really wish you'd taken a bath as well. The day I fall on my face before the Lord of glory, I'm pretty sure the one thing I will never regret is the sin I did repent of. Sometimes we have those excruciating moments of realizing that we've been prattling on about something to someone who knows far more about it than we do. You know what I mean? Maybe you're on the train rubbishing a book to a friend, blissfully unaware that the man in the next door seat is the author. Sometimes your pal clicks before you do, and all the way from Haymarket to Waverley, you think he's having some kind of seizure as he's desperately trying to warn you. Look! Well, that's verse 26, isn't it? Yes, I wash people with water, but not as an end in itself. I do that because the one standing next to you right now is the one with power over your eternity. And you haven't even noticed him yet. Maybe some of us here in church are in the same position this morning. How mortified will we be when we find out it was Jesus who mattered all along? the one we had the chance to welcome week after week after week? Well, the answer to question three comes right at the end in verse 27. What do you think you're doing here, John? What do you say for yourself? And at last, verse 27, he does have something to say about himself, doesn't he? The great celebrity preacher of his age says, I am nothing but his servant. And even that is the greatest privilege of my life. So wonderful, I could never be worthy. To take someone's sandal off and fiddle about with dusty, sweaty feet, the rabbis tell us that was one job considered so menial that no disciple should ever have to do it for his teacher. That was a job kept for the slaves. And that is all John longs to be. Because this one who comes after me is the one we heard about back in the prologue. The eternal God, intensely glorious, full of grace and truth and steadfast love. It is wonderful just to be his servant.
So John could not care less about getting the clicks and the likes, but it will be his joy for all eternity to have held the door open for God the Son. I wonder if we can say the same. Or how often have we been worried that pointing to Jesus might somehow damage the brand? You cannot communicate to the world that you are a big deal and that Jesus is everything. You can't communicate those two truths at the same time. You've got to choose. And all John longs to do is talk about him. So look away from the servant in the limelight and verses 29 to 34, look at the life-giving lamb. Did you catch how many sight words fill this paragraph? The next day he saw Jesus. He said, behold, or in plain English, look. Verse 31, the whole reason I'm out here baptizing is so that he might be revealed, seen. Verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend. Verse 33, God said, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend. Verse 34, and I have seen it. I've seen with my own eyes and I've borne witness to you. All of John's focus is on Jesus. And it's where he wants all of our focus to be as well. So today he gives us three wonderful things to look at in Jesus Christ. Day one was, I am not, I am not, I am not. Day two is Jesus is, Jesus is, Jesus is everything. Three answers, three identities that will shape our eternal destiny if we see them. Jesus is lamb, Lord, and giver of life. Put all those identities together and we'll see those two great pillars of John's testimony come clear. First, verse 29, look at the lamb. You notice this is the first time in John's gospel that we've actually caught sight of Jesus himself, the central figure. And the very first time we see him, we see him on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The ending of this gospel does not come as a shock. Jesus is introduced to us as the one sent to lift the curse of this entire created order onto his shoulders. His ministry begins with John crying out, Behold the Lamb. And 19 chapters later, he is sent to his death with Pilate crying out, Behold the man. His death for sinners is the thing John won't let slip from our eyes for one moment. And if you think about it, if John's baptism was about repenting of sin, then some sort of sacrifice was always going to be needed. Otherwise, those priests would have been right to be up in arms. He was pointing all along to someone who could wash away what the water pictured washing away. Now the commentaries go to town on exactly what John has in mind when he uses the image of a lamb to describe that. John the Baptist 
has obviously been thinking very deeply about the prophet Isaiah. He's just quoted him in verse 40. In a moment, he'll draw on pictures from chapter 61. Almost certainly, John has that whole section of Isaiah the prophet in his heart. The great servant songs of the Messiah. So it's pretty likely that as he sees Jesus coming towards him, he is overwhelmed by that greatest servant song of all from Isaiah 53. The Messiah led like a lamb to the slaughter who carries our sorrows just as here, literally, he carries, lifts away our sin. Then, of course, there's the Passover lamb. It could be that. The lamb sacrificed by every family of Israel in place of their own firstborn son, as God's anger passes by. And when we read on in the book, we find that the whole thing is framed around three Passovers. That is exactly how John will present Jesus' death. Or what about the lamb provided by God in exchange for Abraham's one and only son? We've had little hints of that story already, haven't we? Jesus is the only son from the Father uniquely loved like no other son was ever loved and yet given up because of his love for you. One of my commentaries lists eight possible options for what this lamb stood for and he's not pleased with any of them, which I think is a heroic exercise in missing the point. John doesn't point us to a lamb. He points us to the lamb of God. Jesus is all of them. Every lamb, every sacrifice. John saw the whole Bible story coming together and all of it pointing to this man and this moment when the Lamb of God, the only Son, specially provided in love, dies for the sins of the world. Sufficient to pay for every unforgivable thing every human being has ever done. Just pause on that for a moment, because you and I are part of that world, aren't we? Part of this human realm that was estranged from God and hostile to him, our little individual sins all contribute to that great mass of sin. Just think for a moment of the specific sins that fill you with shame and horror. John is saying, here is the one who can wipe them away. Every last one. Why would you look to anyone else? He is the lamb and verse 30, he is Lord. This one is the very one I was talking about up in verse 15, the one who ranks way before me, the eternal son. And isn't this so deeply humble? John confesses two times that actually he was in just the same boat as all those unbelieving Pharisees who didn't know Jesus either. I myself did not know him. That's another weird thing to say, isn't it? Because we know from Luke that the two were cousins. They met first when John and Jesus were both in the womb and John leapt for joy. He has literally known him all his life. But to know Jesus in this book, 
has bigger connotations. The world did not know him. It means to recognize and acknowledge him as the eternal son sent from the very heart of heaven for you. So do you see what John is saying here? I was in your shoes too. I could never have seen all this by my own cleverness, through my own will. But God was kind to me. God has shown me. And he can show you too. The whole reason he called me to this ministry was that he would be revealed to Israel. God, in his kindness, gave John a sign and he gave John a word, do you see that? To make sure he understood the sign. And what did it all tell John? It told him the third wonderful thing he wants us to see in Jesus. He is the giver of life. The one who can pour out his spirit on his people. I wonder if you notice how in this gospel we're not actually told about Jesus' baptism. All the focus is on the sign that happened alongside it. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. When something remains or abides in this book, it's worth paying attention. That is a big John's Gospel word. So the thing that John stresses in his account is that somehow the Holy Spirit abides with Jesus remains with him in a unique way. And immediately that would have John singing those songs from Isaiah to himself all over again. This servant, this Messiah, he was to be a man full of God's Holy Spirit. You only have to turn the page once from the bit he quoted earlier and you read this, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Behold my servant, look, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, that's Messiah language, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, Jesus is not a king then, like any previous king. He has a relationship with God the Holy Spirit, unlike that of any human being. Someone like David could be called the son of God in a metaphorical sense. It was a royal title for an anointed king. But look at John's conclusion, verse 34. Jesus is the son of God in the fullest possible sense. The anointed one, full of the spirit. And it's the word from God that went along with that sign in verse 33 which tells us the real significance. Verse 33, because Jesus is the one who possesses the Spirit in a unique and special way, because he possesses the Spirit like that, he is the one who can pour that Spirit out on his people. What does it mean that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit? That's a weird phrase again, isn't it? We gloss over it. It's just Christianese. Well, it means that Jesus is the one who brings the dead to life. He does what no human will can ever do. The great haunting question of this book 
is how will people like you and I ever come to accept and welcome this Jesus? We were told in the prologue, it's something that will only ever happen by the will of God. Later on, that gets teased out a bit more. We have to be born all over again into new life, chapter three, verse five, by water and by the spirits. The two great things John the Baptist is playing with here, cleansing and new life. Those aren't two separate events. You don't get forgiveness, cleansing, and then have to wait and hope and pray that you receive the Spirit too. No, they are two sides of the same coin. All at once, when Jesus pours his Spirit into us, he draws us supernaturally to himself and he washes us clean. John's baptism washed people on the outside And that wasn't nothing, it was a genuine seal and promise. But it was a promise of Jesus. Jesus' baptism washes us on the inside. He fulfills with the Spirit what John promised with water. And for him to be the one who can do both of those things, cleanse us and fill us with the life of his Spirit, He has to be everything that John claims he is here. He can wash your sin because as the lamb, he took your sin. He can pour out his spirit on you without measure because as Lord and Messiah, he possesses the spirit without measure. He has life in himself. So why would we look to anyone else? Perhaps this morning you find yourself drawn to church. There's something here that fills you up, but you can't quite believe it the way others seem to believe it. You find yourself saying, I just wish I had their faith. Well, John would say to you, look at Jesus. Ask the Son, and he will pour the life of his Spirit into your heart No one else can give you that. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years, but it still feels dead and dry and half-hearted, and you wonder if you're missing a trick. Well, if you long for something deeper and living, ask the Son. Only he can give it. There's nothing else that can fill us up. There's no second gift. Just more joy in the one unique, precious gift. It's amazing, isn't it, how we can tell ourselves we're in love with Jesus and yet we look everywhere else for stuff that only he can give. Apparently in medieval Christendom, one of the most popular relics for a church to boast about was the finger of John the Baptist. Churches all over Europe claimed to have the finger that pointed to Christ. And it is so ironic, isn't it, when you think about it, that you couldn't make it up. People would flock to church for a spiritual top-up and venerate the finger rather than look at the one it was pointing to. You can go onto Amazon right now, and for £15.92, pennies, you can buy a little bottle of holy water from the River Jordan. 
Water that was only ever meant to point to the reality, to divine blood. And before we sneer at other sort of superstitious Christians, we can do the same sorts of things, but instead of Amazon, we go onto a website like the Gospel Coalition, and I will listen to every sermon I can by Dick Lucas or Tim Keller or Glenn Scrivener, anything I can drink up, whoever's voice it is, I resonate with. People become experts in the voice of John Piper. There are young Christian preachers out there who will imitate his every last inflection because that voice brings in the crowds. But what if all of our focus is on the voice rather than the one it's speaking about? Well, John was delighted to give up all the fame in the world just for the chance to point us to Jesus because he is the answer for all of us. Keep your focus on the life-giving lamb and don't look anywhere else. Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, to look at your Lamb. Would all our lives be spent growing deeper in wonder and confidence in his death for us and his life put within us? Help us, Lord, not to focus our attention on those who point to him, Help us not to seek any attention for ourselves, but rather would every eye be on your sin-bearing, spirit-filled, life-giving Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.